Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is found in Galatians 5, starting at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk, in the, walk by the Spirit, and you will be not, I'm sorry, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, here Paul says, by describing the works of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit, he tells us what we should avoid, or avoid and oppose, and he also tells us what we ought to cultivate and cherish. And really, it's a full-time job as a struggling Christian. But sin does not reign in our mortal bodies, Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. However, as Galatians points out, it's not enough just to not do evil, to cease from evil. We must learn to do well. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit, Romans 8.5. So our actions are always answerable um, to these principles that are laid out here by God or, and by Paul, we must act to mortify the deeds of the body and walk in the newness of life, not being desirous of vainglory or wishing for esteem or applause by men, not provoking or envying, but seeking to bring, on, bring forth the good fruits, which are through Jesus, the praise and glory of God. So we come to confess the works of the, confess our works of the flesh and our wicked deeds of our body. We're going to start looking at the Gospel of Mark in this series. Today will be mostly introductory material, especially the first half, that will become important as we go through the series. So, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. Although the text itself doesn't say who the author is, church history all gives us just one conclusion, and that is the disciple of the Apostle Peter, John Mark, or just Mark for short. We know that he is a disciple of Peter because Peter calls him son in the faith in 1 Peter 5.13. But we actually get introduced to him earlier in the Bible, In fact, the first time we see him is in Acts uh, 12.12. And this happens when an angel breaks Peter out of prison. It says this, When Peter realized that he was broken out, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was also Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. So Mark was an early convert of Peter's and was praying against the persecution of the early church, maybe even praying for Peter's release, which happened that very night. So Mark is not an apostle himself, but he has direct knowledge from the apostles. 
And so when I say this, is, his, this material is early, I mean like early, like the first year of the church. And Mark's family has hospitality. You notice that? Right? Hosting Christians, hosting even now the outlaw Peter. This would have been a large risk to his family. Yet, for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the church, they undertook this. Mark and his family practiced great Christian hospitality by being willing to take in apostles that are not wanted for jailbreaking. Are you willing to take such chances for the kingdom? To put your own family and home at risk? So Mark is the same as the disciple who later created a rift between Paul and Barnabas, right? So in Acts 13, we see that John Mark left Paul's troop and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know the nature of why, but he left and returned to Jerusalem. So in Acts 15, after the Council of Jerusalem, it is suggested by Barnabas, hey, let's take Mark with us. But Paul, remembering his abandonment, didn't want to take him because of the work two chapters ago. And this called Barnabas and Paul to have a fight, to have a falling out. So much so that Barnabas and Mark took off to Cyprus, and Paul continued on to Syria. Thankfully, Barnabas, Paul, and Mark all reconciled. Right? By the end of his ministry, Paul said of Mark that he is very useful to me in ministry, uh, 2 Timothy 4, and he is a fellow worker, Philemon 124. We see all that Mark is actually a cousin of Barnabas, which is probably why they did ministry together, and Paul tells a Colossian church to welcome Mark at his coming, Colossians 4.10. So this book of Mark is based on really early eyewitness, trusted sources. And it can be argued that we might not even have the gospel, we might even have the gospel of Mark, if it weren't for Paul and Mark reconciling. So here's a challenge to you in passing. For have you come to peace with your fellow servants in Christ? Right? You never know what the Lord can do if his church actually had unity and showed each other grace. So this book is likely... Uh, one of the earlier, if not the earliest, of the four Gospels written before Luke, John, and possibly before Matthew. Now, scholars argue for Markian or Matthean priority, which is first Matthew or Mark. We won't get into any of that. Originally written in Koine Greek, which was the common language of the time, which is one reason why we think the book was written to Greeks, because it's in their language. Now, traditions from the early church has the authorship date about the mid-50s, mid to late 50s. And that is because the church father says that Peter, before he died, approved of the gospel. He read it over and signed off on it and said yes. And Peter died in the 60s. Makes sense. And many scholars think that Luke used Mark as a source. In fact, in Luke 1, Luke says, I have compiled all the traditions I brought them all together and put them in an orderly way. Right? So Luke's account is written before Acts. Acts was finished before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Otherwise, it would have definitely been mentioned. Right? And so you have 70 is, is after uh, Acts, and Luke comes before then, and Mark must come before then. So we're looking probably in the 50s, early 60s at the absolute latest. That means Mark has been written very early. 
no later than 20, maybe 30 years of Jesus' ministry, and is based on eyewitness accounts from an early convert who witnessed miracles, who witnessed the apostolic miracles, and who had friends who were leaders of the church. Right? He can be trusted, as with all of our scriptures. The intended audience of Mark, of this gospel, is likely Christians who are now facing pressure, facing persecution, most likely to non-Jewish Christians living in and around Rome, uh, being oppressed for their faith. Mark is writing this as a comfort to Gentile Christians, believers, and he wants to encourage them in their faith. We see this primarily as the book is focused on Christ as king. Right? This is the focus. Christ as king. And that he can face persecution with Christ in your corner. You can face it with Christ in your corner. We will see through the book, if we continue this, that the theme of king and kingdom are just about always present. And I say this because these elements become important when trying to read and understand and bring out the meaning of the text. Knowing who wrote it, why, when, and to whom helps us understand the text itself. So I will likely return to these introductory materials as we go through. Now with that out of the way, let me open up by asking you guys a question. If someone came to you and asked what the gospel was, what would you say? If your child or a co-worker comes up to you and asks you point blank, what is the gospel? How would you define it? The most important truth in the Bible. It's the central message. It's what everything either looks forward to or reflects back on. What is the gospel? Let's now look at a text, Mark 1, 1 through 8. But before I do, let's get some context. The persecuted Christian in Mark's day, they're in a hostile environment. Some may be ostracized for their beliefs, even loss of livelihood. The law favored identity groups, some over others. The government is restricting trade unless you swear obedience and fealty to the state. Caesar is placing heavy taxes on his people. There are now laws being passed that make believing the Christian faith either difficult or illegal. There's a culture of, of uh, sexual promiscuity all around them. Idolatry is rampant. Family is disowning family because they hold to biblical views on certain issues. Pluralism and tolerance for all things is the virtue of the day. I mean, nothing like what we're doing today. Now, granted, it was worse for them. Some were literally hunted and killed, made an example of, as we just saw, Peter himself was imprisoned. But we are seeing similar pressures growing in today's world. That's why this gospel will be helpful. So now, Mark 1, 1 through 8. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism for repentance of the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the straps of whose sandals I'm unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What are we getting into? Mark tells us that we're getting into, quote-unquote, the beginning of the gospel. Now, this is interesting, in my opinion. The introduction is acting as a purpose statement for the rest of the volume. The book that we now call the Gospel of Mark is, quote-unquote, the beginning of the gospel. It starts in history's past and goes right up to the resurrection of Christ. Unlike Luke or John, it ends at the resurrection where there is nothing that comes after. Mark ends very abruptly. So Mark is pointing is the beginning of the gospel and its work. So this gives us a variety of questions. What is the gospel? Who is the gospel centered upon? Where does it start? Where does it end? And how do we respond? And I think that through the course of the series, if we continue it, we will be able to answer these questions. And, like the introductory material, we will return to this question time and again. The first question we must ask is this, what is the gospel? We use the term today in a myriad of ways. First, in common parlance, we refer to something as gospel as something that's ultimately true, can't be disputed. Even when talking non-religiously, right, we use the vernacular, that is the gospel. What I'm saying is indisputably true. For example, we say, the sky is blue on a clear day. That's gospel truth. Just a vernacular usage of the word. It cannot be disputed. Secondly, we call these four books that give us the biography of Jesus, Gospels. So a gospel is a story of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are four Gospels. Thirdly, we use the term to talk about a specific set of truths. right? A set of truths that Christians must believe. Kind of, this is what you must believe in order to be part of the church. Normally when we say we share the Gospel, this is to what we refer to. The four or five basic truths that make up the Christian religion, the most basic ideas. That we are sinners, that we are worthy of God's wrath, that Christ came, lived a perfect life, he died on the cross and was buried, <clears throat> paying for our sins, and he rose again victoriously, opening the way for new life, and that we must believe on him fully for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we call the gospel proper. So when someone asks you, what is the gospel? That is an answer that you can give. Fourth, sometimes we use the word gospel to refer to the whole teachings of the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's, that's gospel. It's in the scriptures, right? These are different ways that this word is used. But what does Mark mean by it here? He uses the word twice in this text. The word gospel is a cognate of two Greek words. You, which simply means good. Kind of like when you have a eulogy at a funeral, which means it's a good word. A good word for the person who has passed. Or, as J.R. Tolkien coined, a, a eucatastrophe, which is a word that takes a you for good and catastrophe, a disaster, smashes them together. A good disaster, right? Uh, it, it is the point to how God operates. God uses catastrophes and problems for greater good. We have a God who operates first and foremost through resurrection, through death and rising again. He would say that the cross of Christ, Tolkien would say the cross of Christ is the ideal eucatastrophe. His death is good news. Then in a word, the gospel here is angelion, you 
and Gilead, which simply means news or tidings, uh, uh, pointing to something that happened. Uh, it is, it is like Engelion that it snowed yesterday. It is the word behind the angels telling the shepherd about the birth of Christ, and they say, we bring you glad tidings. We bring you UN Gilead. We bring you a gospel. They literally bring the gospel. They, the angels bring you good news. The gospel is at a savior. The chosen, the anointed one, the Messiah, born in the city of kings. It is a gospel of good news. Books Mark is the beginning of the good news. And this gospel is the gospel, it says, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is good news about a person. It's not just that the sun is going to come out and melt the snow and make it all safe to drive again. No, this is news about an individual, a person in history, a person who walked, had flesh, blood, a very specific person, a particular person named Jesus. The word Christ is not a last name. Most of you know that. But it is the Greek word for Messiah, or Messiah, as we say, which simply means anointed. Right? To anoint someone is to pour oil over them and have it go over them. And it often is done to show the individual is chosen for something, for a particular purpose. David was anointed as a boy saying that someday later he will become king of Israel. Right? God chose David to be royalty, so the prophet anointed him. And this is symbolized by the pouring of oil. So Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen king of God, and he is given a strange title here, the Son of God. Now we will address this term if we keep going, but in short... It is to show that there is a special relationship between Jesus and God the Father. Namely, that Jesus is God. He's of the same nature, God. One person of the Trinity, sent by the Father to accomplish a specific mission. So, we can answer one of the questions from before. Who is this gospel centered upon? Well, who is the lead actor in this news? It's the chosen one. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed King. And after declaring this book is the beginning of the gospel of Christ, where does Mark go next? Now, does Mark start with Christmas, Jesus' birth? Well, Luke begins there. How about his genealogy, his, his familial relationships, where he come from, flesh and blood? Matthew does that. John starts in eternity's past. The word was with God, with the divinity of Christ, from before creation. How about his first miracles? Turning the water into wine would be a great starting place for a gospel. Or a marriage supper. How poetic. How about the inaugural sermon? Mark doesn't go there either. Or even a childhood memory. Cults and uh, Islam start there. Nope. Mark starts with scripture. Namely quoting three different texts brought together to make a thematic point. Behold... It says, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord and make his path straight. Mark believes that the start of the gospel is found in the Old Testament. There is general continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. It started back there and it's continuing now. 
The fact that there is one God, that he is giving us his law, that men are fallen and sinful, and that God needs to provide salvation, these elements are from the start of the Bible all the way through the end. There is a continuity between the old and the new. Now quickly, this passage actually presents a problem. It references three passages, but attributes the quote to only Isaiah. Did you ever notice that? Skeptics raise this as an objection against the scripture's infallibility. And I believe that part of the, the, the pulpit ministry is preparing people to know how to defend the faith. So I'm going to go inside here and answer that objection. Right? It is better to understand the objections uh, to the faith and provide a defense. Here is an apparent wrong citation by Mark. Consider an argument against the authority of the God-breathed scriptures. But this method of quotation was actually very common in Jewish practice of the day. Since the majority of the quote came from Isaiah, and Isaiah is the largest of the books referenced, the author would commonly only attribute it to that one. The ancients didn't have the same practice or rules around citation as we do today for academic work. Mark isn't in college uh, getting graded on his bibliography. He doesn't care. So when this is really a non-issue, and it's only raised because of modern copyright sensitivities, which is a concept which had been completely foreign to our ancient authors. So Mark sees the start of the gospel as it is rooted in the Old Testament. And he's saying this to Gentile Christians. We should hold that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is written for us. Do not unhitch parts of the Bible. But what three texts does he bring together? Well, he strings together Exodus 23.20, Isaiah 43, and Malachi 3.1. I will read just relevant portions of this text. From Exodus, it says, Behold, I will send an angel or messenger before you. And if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. This is talking about a messenger angel that God sends before the children of Israel as they're entering the promised land, establishing the kingdom of Israel. If they obey this message, if the Jews obey this messenger, then God will work wonders in them. God promises that he will drive out the enemies if they obey his angel. The angel comes before the Lord. You notice that? The angel comes before Yahweh, who drives out the people's enemies and delivers his people. The next part, as the Markham quote, comes from Malachi. I'll read, the, the, I'll read this. He will prepare the way, and a messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So here we have Malachi saying the same thing to the Jews of that day, to what God said to the Jews entering Israel. We see again, a messenger comes before God himself, and that Lord will come to his temple. No one can stand opposed to the coming of Yahweh, and the Lord will purify and refine, and he will make Israel pleasing to God. The third quote is from Isaiah 40. It's a longer quote, but I'll read just this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare our way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here, the context is that God is speaking peace to his people. Their warfare has ended. Their sins are dealt with. Their transgressions are forgiven. 
we then again have a voice that proceeds or precedes the coming of Yahweh. We learn this voice is now coming from the wilderness, similar to where the Jews were at before their entrance into Canaan, as the Exodus passage we just saw. And the coming of the Lord is a revelation of God's glory, and it will flatten out creation itself. This is language of judgment. Everyone will see this. All flesh will see it. The gospel will go to every nation, and the kingdom of Israel will face hard times, but it will be reestablished. That's the promise in Isaiah. So why does Mark smash these three texts together? Why does he do that? Now, each of them tell of the coming of God himself, Yahweh. Each of them indicate that God will purify or judge his people. So his purification, the coming of God and purification. And his people will have victory and will have peace over external nations and threats. All three of them include salvation from nations and threats. And this is what Mark calls, in part, the beginning of the gospel. Whereas other gospels start off in Jesus' story, either his divine nature or his human birth, Mark starts off in the fact that Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of prophecy. God promised that he will, he will be with his people, that he will protect them. This would be a comfort to the people who are facing trials, who are facing persecution. I know what a comfort that this would be to an audience that Mark is writing to. In Exodus, the Jews in the wilderness faced down Egypt, the vastest and largest military might of the time. And they are promised a kingdom in Canaan and to overthrow all the smaller kingdoms there. And in Isaiah, Israelites are then surviving the Babylonian exile, which are to come out in the largest day of the empire. And in Malachi, the Jews were under Persian rule. So this message would be comforting to the persecuted church facing off against Rome, the pinnacle of all empires. A gospel that overcomes and outlasts even imperial tyranny. And since Christ brings peace, the most important peace he brings is between you and I, a sinner and God himself, a just judge. Trust in Christ and restore your relationship with God. But these quotes come from both the law and the books of two prophets. One of the major prophets, one being a minor prophet. Uh, so the coming of God and his herald is a fulfillment, literally, of the law and prophets. Now this term, law and prophets, is an idiom used by the Jews in that day to reference their whole set of scriptures, the Tanakh what we call today the Old Testament, they would call the law and the prophets. And it's interesting here that Malachi, uh, Mark smashes together Malachi and Isaiah and Moses as law and prophets to say this is the beginning of the gospel. Mark is saying that this conglomeration of passages that the Old Testament all points to and fulfills the promises of God in the coming of Christ. But also, each of these has something else in common. There's another thread through there which I haven't pulled on yet. And that is, there will be a precursor. There'll be a precursor to God's arrival. An angel, a messenger that comes before the Lord and heralds his coming. 
And this brings us to the next part of the Markan text. The fulfillment of this part of the prophecy. That is, who is the herald? John the Baptist. This text says that John the Baptist, not to be confused with the author of the book, John Mark, or the Apostle John, who came and proclaimed um, later, and, and, and we're talking about John the Baptist, who baptized people, called them to repentance. And this baptism was an act of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you see this, as his message must have been about repentance, as people came to him, in verse 5, and they confessed their sins. Right? The text also indicates that he was quite popular. Right? All of Judea, it says, was coming out to him. Though we will see later that he does, in fact, have some enemies. Now, there's an interesting detail in the text. That John was in the wilderness when he was baptizing in the River Jordan. Why do I think that's important? This is just like the Jews before entering the Promised Land. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and they entered into Canaan from the east, which have required them to pass through the River Jordan. And just as God did in the Red Sea, splitting the waters and allowing the nation to enter through on dry ground, Yahweh miraculously split the Jordan as well in Joshua chapter 3, the lesser-known splitting of the seas. This allowed the people to enter into the land and defeat her enemies and establish a kingdom. So by baptizing in the River Jordan, John is saying that they could reestablish covenant with God, just like how the Jews were given the land when they were first baptized through the River Jordan centuries earlier. It's a restoration of the covenant. And what did John proclaim? He says this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whom sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John proclaimed that he was a precursor, a warm-up act before the main event. He was just a voice in the wilderness. Another one is coming. One who is greater than John. And catch this language. The straps of whom sandals John is unworthy to untie. In those days, People would walk everywhere. They didn't have cars or bikes. <clears throat> they didn't even have sidewalks. Everything was dirt roads. And those roads were mostly used for beasts of burden, like camels or donkeys. So you can imagine that people's sandals were quite nasty. Walking everywhere in and through mud, dirt, and animal droppings. This made the foot one of the least respected or honored parts of the body. It would be a sign of disrespect and dishonor to put your foot on someone, which is why it's often said through the scriptures that God's enemies will be made a footstool because it's under the place of lowest honor. Those who reject the Lord will be placed under him and shown to have the greatest dishonor. Even today in the Middle East, the greatest sign of disrepute that you can show someone is to place them under your left foot. That's how you diss someone. And John says that the promised one who is coming is so great, so glorious, that even John himself is unworthy to untie these sandals. I read somewhere that it's so dishonoring to untie someone's sandals that in Jewish law, you wouldn't even make your slaves do it. 
That's how low this is. John is saying that he is below even the slave of one to come. John is saying that he is lesser worth than even the stuff on the bottom of the shoes of the one to come. Compared to Christ, that's what John the Baptist is. He's called the greatest of all the prophets. And the one that comes after him will be baptized with the Holy Spirit instead of just water. This language of baptism of the Spirit is of conversion, of being made pure, of cleansing of your sins. We saw that in Malachi, of the purification of silver. As the Jews entered the kingdom of God through the Jordan, those repentant under John were baptized in the Jordan. But to join with Christ, he needs to baptize your spirit. We will revisit this next time. But in short, you need this baptism of Christ, the spirit baptism. For it cleanses away your sins and makes you right before God. Just as God is saving his people at a macro, at a large level, through baptism and through faith and repentance, he's going to save you individually at a micro level. So in short, John is fulfilling these prophetic requirements perfectly. He's the voice who comes first. He's the messenger before Yahweh. And all three of these texts, the beginning of the gospel, the law, and the prophets, tell us that this is God himself that has come after a messenger. That the one coming who will purify and refine and bring judgment, bring salvation, bring peace, flatten the world. He sees this one as God himself. Christ is God himself, the incarnate, as we just said in the creed. So what is, according to Mark, this gospel of Christ? And how does he use that phrase through the book? And this is especially interesting, as the word gospel is used before Christ ever sets foot in Jerusalem. Right? So the usage here is a biblical usage. The word gospel is not being used as the gospel proper here. Those four or five things. The gospel is the coming of Christ. The coming of a king and the establishment of his kingdom. Look at how this term is used through Mark. In chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Then in 835, Jesus says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Right before talking about seeing the coming of a kingdom. Then again in uh, chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says this about entering into his kingdom. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. So here Jesus is talking about a gospel and expects you to know what it is even before he went to Jerusalem. So what is this gospel? And in 1310 it says that it teaches that this gospel will go out to all nations. So the gospel, according to Mark, is the gospel of Christ Establishing a kingdom. Mark is giving us a gospel of the kingdom. And to enter it, we must repent. We must believe in Christ the King. And the gospel of the kingdom will consume all nations. And we will be willing to lay down everything for its sake. So as we wrap this up, we saw that Mark wants to tell us the good news. The gospel, the euangelion. And this book is the beginning of the gospel. And that the gospel is about Jesus, the Son of God. Also, his coming was foretold from ages and ages and ages beforehand. 
And Mark introduces Jesus as a fulfillment of that promise, as a fulfillment of that prophecy. And that his coming will be one of justice, one of peace, one of purification. God will overcome all the enemies of his people. And now you can see that this message, this message of God overcoming and encouraging those who are facing trials and facing persecution, right? God has promised deliverance to his people, right? Both in the old days and now in Mark, the original audience. And one could argue that we are facing or will be facing soon very similar pressures. The Disrespect for Marriage Act will likely start impacting churches. Health tyranny, lockdowns, mandates, an education system that teaches directly opposed to Christian truth and Christian virtue. A redefinition of justice with identity at its core, a denial of the rule of law, a taxation system that punishes good behavior and is essentially theft. Literal literal Satan statues set up in state capitals, including our own. All these remind us that Christ is building his kingdom and that we should not get discouraged. We have a lot of work ahead of us as individuals, as families, as churches, and as a country, but Christ promised to protect his people and to grow his kingdom regardless. So the gospel of the kingdom starts here. You need to repent and be baptized. You need to turn to Christ as king. And if you want to see the changes out in the world, it starts with your repentance. It starts with your family. And this is what it's all about. God is establishing his, establishing his kingdom, his gospel, with his people, through his son, Jesus Christ. He is making all the enemies his footstool. And our response to this promised victory of what John gives us, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let us recognize that Jesus is Savior, that he is establishing his kingdom now, and that he has promised victory for his people, and that this is good news, glad tidings. So let us likewise confess, let us likewise repent, and turn away from our iniquities. Believe on the one to come, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and have the certainty of life which, with Christ, not only now, but forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us your gospel, a gospel of the kingdom where you will overcome your enemies, where you will preserve your people, and where you reign righteously. We thank you that you have revealed these things through the prophetic words of Moses, Malachi, Isaiah, and Mark. And I pray that you increase our trust and our faith in you, that we can repent of our sins, and we live knowing that the kingdom is at hand. As we, as we move now to communion, let us be an image of that applying these truths to each of us individually. And together as a united body. And now we sing as you call us a prayer. This morning we're reading from Isaiah 40 again. Lift up, let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh 
has spoken. As we consider the coming of Christ's kingdom and the preparation for his arrival by John the Baptist, we hear the words from Isaiah, let every valley be lifted up, make mountains and hills low, level the rough ground. The phrase rough ground become a plain is very interesting as the word used in Hebrew for rough ground or rugged terrain denotes a deceitful or a slippery place, the rough terrain acting like a hill that impedes our progress and our understanding. Imagine trying to walk a great distance, easier to do on flat ground than up a hill. The plain and the broad valley speaks of righteousness, a level place that is straight and just and free of impediment. We read these words and we see the results of John's preaching. The geography of the people's hearts was reshaped. Sin was confessed. The people's hearts were prepared like good soil for the preaching and teaching of Christ. We are thankful this morning that our Lord and Savior has lifted up the weak. He has knocked down the hills of sin that we struggle to overcome and has seated us at his table to see his glory that has been revealed to us. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The gifts of God for the people of God. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.